Welcome to the JCR, a Massey podcast where people and ideas intersect. I'm Leighton Schreier, and today I'm here with Hannah Hogue. award-winning science journalist with more than 20 years experience reporting for newspapers, magazines, online news, and radio. She is the deputy editor and the environment and energy editor at The Conversation Canada and a 2022-23 William Southam Journalism Fellow at Massey. Welcome, Hannah. Thanks very much, Leighton. It's great to be here. Today, we are going to be exploring science communication and why effective communication is a critical skill for scientists to develop. So without further ado, let's dive into the conversation. Hannah, you started your career as a medical researcher. During that time, what are some of the biggest or most common mistakes you saw in scientific communication? That is a really interesting question. I'm not totally sure that when I was doing research, I was as focused on how to be an effective communicator. I was more enthralled by all the different types of discovery and science that was going on. Um, And I was also really interested in the way science was being communicated to a non-expert audience. So kids and adults who are teenagers who are going to science museums. Um, So I um, I think one of the things that I really saw was that there was a a general sort of lack of interest among researchers to communicate their research directly to a non-expert audience. Um, They either didn't see, I'm guessing here, but perhaps they didn't see that it was worth their time or that the uh, public just wasn't interested in hearing directly from them about their research. That's a really interesting point that you said that, you know, scientists maybe thought that it wasn't worth their time. How would you respond to scientists who say that it's not their responsibility to engage the public in their work? There's a couple of answers to that. Um, One of the ones that uh, we often hear, but I don't actually know if it's the most effective, is that science in universities, in colleges, is publicly funded. So it is taxpayer dollars that are paying for their research. Um, So you can make that argument that it is a responsibility of theirs to communicate the research. But I see their side too, because um, research funding dollars are harder to come by, there's always more pressure to do more research, there's never more time, um, and researchers don't get recognition from their universities a lot of the time for doing that type of outreach. So it's, I understand their position and why they say they don't have time and why they don't necessarily do it. That said, I've also talked with a lot of researchers who do go out of their way to do this, and they find it not only personally really rewarding, um, but they also find that it gives them a sort of recognition uh, within um, the, the research funding community of doing that, of making that effort and having their research heard and understood by a wider audience. So they're also getting practice while they're doing it. And one of the things that um, um, I believe you have to do on a lot of research grants these days is do a plain language summary of what is your research, why does it matter, what's important about it, and that influences whether or not you can get that funding. If you can describe to the funders as to why your research is important, and if they have practice doing it, then maybe it helps them get more funding too. And after the fact, the funding agencies often want to see what sort of outreach you've done, um, and you can say, 
I spoke at this Café Scientifique, or I wrote this explainer piece in the conversation, for example, um, and it got, you know, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people read it, and um, I connected with people who were interested in my research. So there's all these different uh, ways that it can be done and where there can be value that comes from it. Yeah, so you spoke to some really incredible points in terms of you know, the, the value that scientific or good scientific communication has for the researchers and why it's important for them and their science. Um, let's turn around now and look at the other side of things in terms of, from a community perspective, why it's important to have good science communication. So can you talk to me a little bit about some of the real-life consequences of poor science communication and maybe a few recent examples of how that's played out in society? Uh, yeah, that's a really great question and so relevant today. Um, I would say a decade ago or so, I started to think more about how um, knowledge of any type improves uh, um, people's involvement in sort of the in democracy, basically, and how it enables you to choose the candidates you think are important to vote for or to get involved more sort of at local level on certain initiatives. And science plays in with that too. And um, you know, it's always sort of been a bit peripheral as far as figuring out you know, which candidate you want to vote for or something like that. But obviously we saw in the last few years how um, uh, science and understanding of science can really influence directly what actions you take and what sort of impacts they can have on your family and your community at large um, with the pandemic, which is sort of an obvious one. Um, and I think there we've seen a lot of misinformation and disinformation spread through social media. And some of the time people don't even realize that what they're reading is not true. And they go on to pass it on because they think it might be helpful. And a better understanding of science or a better understanding of how to find credible science sources um, could help people uh, make sure that they're taking the precautions they need to take and that they're also not spreading um, false information to their friends and family that could do harm, but also just may not have any positive effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the example of the pandemic is a really great one. And for myself, um, as a medical student, it's something that I've thought a lot about in terms of um, how communication has factored into the public's willingness to, you know, wear masks or take up vaccines um, and, and different things like that. And how if we potentially were better communicators, could we have been able to prevent some of the, the consequences that we saw? I think you're right on that, but I'm not going to lay all the blame on <laughs> the medical staff or the scientists. I think we had a confluence of a lot of events, sort of the perfect storm. So you've got a situation in media where um, newsrooms are contracting. Often it's the experts in health or science that are forced to go. You have this unseen sort of global health emergency rise and it's unknown it's confusing it's scary uh, newsrooms are putting all their reporters on it and so you have people who have no background in science um, starting to cover this issue then on the other side you do have scientists and medical professionals that are under a lot of stress and pressure just trying to treat patients and trying to figure out what's going on with this new virus um, and then with with that, there's sort of a, you flip into, I would imagine you flip into a bit of a um, sort of a triage mode. You just, you're just trying to get what you can get done as best you can. And sometimes maybe you forgot, you forget from, from the sort of um, 
science or medical perspective, you forget who you're talking to. Mm -hmm. You forget that you're speaking with a reporter that doesn't have a science background or doesn't have a good understanding of viruses or epidemiology or pandemics, or you forget that you're talking to a public that is, is afraid or it's, is sort of apt to push back if, their, um, personal restric if there's restrictions placed on their personal sort of lives and way that they move about. Um, so you've got all of this emotion, all of this really fast-moving um, situation, a lack of information, and you have a public that doesn't understand largely how science works, and perhaps a, a medical scientific community that forgets that they don't understand that. And there could have been, I think, better, you know, everything's easier looking back to say these are where the mistakes were made, but I think overall one of the things that could have been better done is just to explain uncertainty in science is normal and that there is a process that in science that sort of is self-correcting and that information changes over time because that's ended up, that sort of uncertainty ended up being amplified within the public on social media in some news uh, stories as well as being public health officials don't know what they're doing um, so it was an unfortunate situation, but you can see how we might have ended up at that place. And the question is, what do we do next? How do we prevent this from happening again? And I do think one of the solutions is that researchers get more comfortable with talking to non-experts about their work and that we talk overall as a science communication community, whether you're a journalist or whether you're a researcher, how science is done and what that process is. Yeah. I love that you already started to answer that question in terms of what is the solution because I was about to throw that right back at you <laughs> in terms of how can we you know do better and make sure that this is potentially prevented in the future. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm obviously a big advocate for science communication. I do think um you know, there are journalists and other science communicators that do have an expertise and that they have a role to play in all of this, but um, we need researchers who are experts to be able to step up um, and be willing to talk to journalists or uh, do their own writing or do their own or, you know, volunteer to be um, an expert on a TV show or on a radio show or, you know, put up their own social media posts in some way to sort of step out there um, to make it clear what is going on or even, you know, take on... Uh, the people who are spreading misinformation purposely, so disinformation, and debunk some of their claims and say this is this is not how this happens, and uh, make sure that they have networks of people to amplify their their statements as well, because um, there is going to be something else that comes down the line, um, whether it's closer to home or whether it's further to home, whether it's medical or whether it's some other aspect of science. There are things that are going to be. Um, confusing and scary and uh, feel unknown to a general public where experts can step in and try and uh, set us straight in terms of knowing what is going on, whether it's a, how serious it is and what sort of things we can do. Yeah, and I think we're seeing that in some ways right now as well with, with climate change and what's going on there in terms of, you know, I know your expertise is in the environment. Um, and so I think we're seeing that a little bit in terms of, you know, how serious it is and what we can be doing to make those changes and the way that that is communicated in a way that resonates with the public and is not just, you know, despairing in terms of creating this kind of grief, but also empowering. And what are the stories that we are creating around that narrative? I totally agree. I think, I mean, journalism sort of 
there's this old line that says if it bleeds it leads and it's sort of the idea that journalists kind of go after stories that are generally downers or horrific or something like that and there's some truth to that and I think you know we do tend to focus on problems and with the climate situation we're still going to need stories that say that talk about the science that talk about these sort of um, uh, if if the trends continue, the sort of negative trends, the not the the dangerous things that we're seeing, but at the same time, there are a lot of solutions out there. There are a lot of things that are working that are not, um, you know, th these are these things that I sort of say are non-sexy tech. <laughs> you know, these these things that we have in place or these regulations that we can put in place that will have a very positive effect on reducing emissions overall. Um, and reporters should be spending more time on them. They should be spending more time on reporting on solutions that have been um, tested and have evidence behind them and have worked in smaller communities and maybe can be scaled up and spread around. Um, and one thing that I am critical of uh, um, within the sort of uh, some, some journalists covering climate or climate solutions is that there's often this sort of desire to focus on the big shiny thing. that you know, is being marketed as the solution to all our problems. And governments and companies are a little bit guilty of sort of promoting this as well. Governments want to show that they've invested, you know, X millions of dollars into this next new thing. It looks, it shows that they're being innovative and that they're funding research and that is good. But often it sort of shifts the attention away from the thing that we know will work um, and puts it on something that hasn't been tested at scale, something that isn't ready to be deployed at a commercial scale and that may not have the effect on carbon emissions that we need now because we are eight years away from 2030 which is a middle point and that means that we're only 28 years away from 2050 where Canada and most of the world is supposed to be down at net zero emissions we have a long way to go yeah for sure so for scientists who are interested in you know taking that step to engage the public like you said to talk more to journalists to talk at you know, events for the general public, whether that be at like a cafe or some sort of symposium or something. Um, what are some specific strategies that you think academics and researchers can be employing so that there's less of that divide between, you know, what we had talked about, the scientists and what they know about, about science and the general public who potentially has no background in this whatsoever. How can they make sure that they're connecting with communities? There are so many different ways they can do go about this and some of it you know depends on person personality type and the amount of time they have and where they are in their research career. So I've been talking to scientists about science communication for probably 15 years now or so and doing workshops with them. So one way is just talk to your um, talk to the uh, communications officers at your university. A lot of them have experience in doing this or have connections and just want to hear that you're interested in taking a workshop. They could put something together for you. Um, at the Conversation Canada, we do these workshops regularly. And so um, these are things that if you are interested, you could contact your comms office and have them connect with us to do a workshop as well. Uh, the other thing is, um, there are plenty of other workshops around. If you as a PI or somebody that's not that keen on doing public outreach, find a postdoc or PhD student in your lab who's doing important work who is, because a lot of these early career researchers I find are very keen on communicating their work. And they have different sort of um, 
interests and abilities and all sorts of different types of media to be able to go out and do that as well. And so if there is someone in your lab um, who wants to do it, uh, well, just ask, first of all, do you even know? Find out how your lab feels about science communication and if there's somebody who's especially enthusiastic about it. Um, I would also say, uh, and this is one of the things that journalists are always told, if you want to write for a particular magazine or newspaper or site, uh, to read it and figure out how it works. And if you, so another thing you can do is find a researcher who you admire, who does outreach that you, um, uh, you think that they do it really well in a way that you could see yourself doing it and read what they do and try and figure out how they do it. And chances are that I'd be happy to give you a couple of tips as well. So it's all about sort of creating this network and finding these um, different ways that fit best with you. Because if you're uncomfortable doing it, it's probably not gonna sound as great as it could be, but you may find something that really works with you and, and in a way that um, gets that information and message across as well. You mentioned that um, you know younger graduate students um, are a lot of the times really interested in doing that outreach. I wonder if you can reflect on this, and I don't know if if there's necessarily an answer to this, but do you think that that is a difference that you know changes throughout your career as you progress, or do you think that this is a generational thing that you know the up and coming researchers are inherently more engaged and more interested in communicating effectively? probably a bit of both. I feel like I'm sort of answering this anecdotally, no like solid evidence behind this answer, but it's probably a bit of both. I know in the last 15 years uh, the perception of um, communicating to the public has changed. Uh, there isn't this sort of um, idea that it's a waste of time or that uh, it's looked down upon by um, it used to be looked down upon. It used to be seen as sort of simple, like dumbing down science was sort of the way it was it was described, and and I don't think that's true anymore. I still think there's big change that still needs to be made in terms of changing that perception, but I don't think that that's generally true. I also think you have a generation that has been raised on email, social media, that sort of connectivity and ability to create your own content that didn't exist. Um, for you know people born in the 70s and earlier realistically and so there is a different sort of um, relationship that early career researchers have with media overall and um, I think those are my two sides to that answer okay great well I think that's a great way to end this conversation you gave us some very useful tips about how to be better science communicators and the importance of it for society Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks so much. It was great. I've been speaking with Hannah Hogue, an award-winning science journalist and William Southam Journalism Fellow at Massey College. I'm Leighton Schreier. You've been listening to The JCR, a production of the Junior Fellows at Massey College at the University of Toronto.